heard his goats, and they shot him uh, in cold blood as well. And the grand jury refused to indict him. Uh, the agent, I mean, I'm sorry, the Marine uh, was not indicted, and there was no justice uh, for the family either. And the last one I would like to mention here real quick is Anastasio Hernandez Rojas, who was beaten in uh, San Isidro, California, by about 15 Border Patrol agents uh, when they were trying to deport him. He was handcuffed, laying on the ground. This was photographed and videotaped by bystanders from the uh, bridge overhead, showing him being ruthlessly beaten, crying for mercy. He died like the next day from his injuries, being beaten by these Border Patrol agents. And none of them have been indicted or and no charges. And that's that's unfortunately the common theme in all of this is that the Border Patrol can get away with murder. I do want to mention somebody who was not on this banner that was killed last year because these killings are still are occurring. And that is Claudia Patricia Gomez. Uh, Gonzalez, a Guatemalan indigenous woman who was killed after she crossed the border in Laredo, Texas, and gunned down by Border Patrol and murdered. And the Border Patrol also, as usual, come up with a fabricated story, claimed that, that she had, with others, had attacked the Border Patrol with two-by-fours. And they actually retracted that story. You know, that it wasn't true. That's the, one of the few times they've ever retracted a story. But yet, there's been no charges filed against those agents either, against, you know, the death of this, this young woman. That's Richard Barron with the Border Patrol Victims Network. One of the victims Richard named, Guillermo Arevalo Pedrosa, was actually killed in 2012, not 2010. Richard was standing at the site on the U.S. side of the border, up against the border wall, up against the slats where he had put his mural, um, right where uh, Lonnie Swartz uh, took his gun, the border agent, and shot through the slats and killed José Antonio. Elena Rodriguez. Special thanks to our team on the ground in Arizona, Tamari Astudio, Trina Nadura, Maria Tadesena, John Hamilton, Libby Rainey, and Dennis Moynihan. That does it for our broadcast. Democracy Now! is produced by Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Nermeen Sheikh, Carla Wills, Tammy Warrenoff, Sam Alkoff, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood. I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now! Go to our website for our full series death and resistance on the U.S.-Mexico border. Thanks so much for joining us. You are listening to KBOO Portland. Next up, it's Sojourner Truth Radio. Media Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Stephen Marley, Babylon by Bus Tour on Friday, August 30th at 8 p.m. at the Roseland Theater in Portland. The second son of Bob and Rita Marley, eight-time Grammy-winning musician and producer Stephen Marley, will perform in Portland with DJ Sasha Pena, who will be opening the show. Again, that's Stephen Marley, Babylon by Bus Tour on Friday, August 30th at 8 p.m. at the Roseland Theater, 8 Northwest 6th Avenue in Portland. This is a 21 and over event. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Hello, KBOO members. Thank you for being a part of our amazing community. Please join us this year at Mike to the People, our annual election meeting. Do you want to help steer KBU in a positive direction this fall? Plan on attending the annual election meeting, Mike to the People, September 14th from noon to 3 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater and make your voice heard. Cast your vote by 1 p.m. at the event and enjoy refreshments and live entertainment with local musicians, West Coast Black Bear, and Izzy BM. Hear a report back from your board of directors and get to know this year's candidates. Record your fondest memories of KBOO in a minute or less at the Mike to the People booth. This is an all-ages and disability affirmative event. Again, that's the annual election meeting, Mike to the People, Saturday, September 14th from noon to 3 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street. 
featuring West Coast Black Bear and Izzy BM. More information can be found at kboo.fm forward slash meeting 2019. Remember, your voice matters. Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we commemorate the 49th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium, one of the most impactful events in Chicano history in the United States. On August 29, 1970, a huge march of approximately 30,000, mainly young people, stormed East Los Angeles opposing the Vietnam War, demanding rights for Chicano people, especially in the areas of education and ethnic studies. The march was led by activists from local colleges and other schools and members of the Brown Berets with roots in a high school student movement that led massive walkouts two years earlier in 1968 in East L.A. These walkouts were known as the Chicano blowouts, in which students protested against unequal and racist conditions in Los Angeles Unified School District high schools in East L.A. The Chicano blowouts, along with the Chicano moratorium, were some of the largest mobilizations by Mexican-Americans to this date, as far as we know. During the Chicano moratorium, police busted out their batons and tear gas canisters, began forcibly breaking up the mass demonstration, which was concentrated at Laguna Park. Four people died, dozens were injured, and more than 150 people were arrested, according to historical records. Among the four people who were killed was Ruben Salazar, an award-winning journalist with the Los Angeles Times, who was one of the few reporters on the ground providing coverage of the events. Let's go now to a clip. Some of the sound that you will also hear are basically police batons beating in the heads and other parts of uh, protesters. And uh, Paul Ruiz, who was one of the um, a leader, a local leader, and was also covering the March for La Raza. Uh, it includes his beating. He got a sound beating by Los Angeles Police Department. I see this young girl, a young teenage girl, and then she had been floored, literally thrown to the sidewalk. And, and, and I went up to where they were at. I said, you know, why are you doing that? a little girl. And that seemed to activate anger among some of the deputies, some of the policemen that were there, and they grabbed me, pulled me around, slammed me to the sidewalk. I had thrown my camera at one of my friends to take it. to the squad car. And then they drove me to the alley and beat the hell out of me and warned me, you don't want to ever see you again. And then they boom, they pushed me out and, and left me there in the alley. And then walked out and went back to Roosevelt. All righty. And uh, just awful. Uh, just, you could hear the violence really in, in that clip. And our guests uh, are T- Teresa Montano. Uh, Saul Marquez and Bill Gallegos. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. Hurricane Dorian did only light damage to Puerto Rico when the Virgin Islands went 
Wednesday. However, it poses an increasing menace to Florida as it approaches the U.S. mainland. The U.S. National Hurricane Center said Dorian was expected to grow into a potentially devastating Category 3 hurricane before hitting the U.S. mainland late Sunday or early Monday, somewhere between the Florida Keys and southern Georgia. Dorian blew through the Virgin Islands as a Category 1 hurricane on Wednesday while raking nearby Puerto Rico with high winds and rain. Officials said the storm caused an island-wide blackout in St. Thomas and St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands and scattered power outages in St. Croix. Weather officials warned people in the storm's path to heed all evacuation orders. Only 10 candidates made the cut to be on stage for the next Democratic presidential debate in Houston next month as the deadline passed Wednesday to qualify. The failure to qualify caused New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand to drop out of the race. Gillibrand made the announcement to supporters via video message. I know this isn't the result we wanted. We wanted to win this race. But it's important to know when it's not your time and to know how you can best serve your community and country. I believe I can best serve by helping to unite us to beat Donald Trump in 2020. Along with Gillibrand, billionaire Tom Steyer, Montana Governor Steve Bullock, and Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard were among those not making the threshold to qualify for the debate. To qualify, candidates had to hit 2% in at least four approved public opinion polls while securing 130,000 unique donors. The 10 candidates who qualified for September's debate are Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's decision to suspend Parliament just ahead of Britain's scheduled departure from the EU at the end of October is drawing intense criticism from opponents who are calling it anti-democratic. The move is being seen as a device to limit debate and opportunities to legislate against a no-deal Brexit ahead of the deadline. But Johnson's conservative supporters say the move to suspend Parliament ahead of a Queen's speech to lay out the government's agenda is normal. Conservative MP and Lord President of the Privy Council, Jacob Rees-Mogg, told Sky News, opponents are making hay over nothing. This is routine, it's actually quite boring, but the arch-remainers who don't want us to leave the European Union have started crying constitutional crisis, but actually they're crying wolf. The Prime Minister's decision drew predictable condemnation from some British newspapers that are vehemently opposed to a no-deal departure. The Independent said Johnson is using devious means to undermine Britain's democratic institutions. Johnson has very little leeway for any political slippage. He was not elected in his own right and has only a one-vote majority in the House of Commons. President Trump and Vice President Pence will participate today in the establishment of the U.S. Space Command. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, announced last week that the command would be launched today. The Space Command will be responsible for planning and carrying out space operations. Dunford said it will have 87 units at its launch with abilities including missile warning, satellite operations, space control, and space support. General John Raymond was confirmed as the commander of Space Command by the Senate in June. The Space Command is viewed as a step toward the Space Force military branch, which would need congressional approval. A city audit concludes the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, or LASA, has significantly failed to meet goals for placing people into permanent housing and for referrals to substance abuse and mental health treatment. City controller Ron Galperin told the Los Angeles Times the goals set by the city in its contract with this agency are actually a low bar. The audit, released Wednesday, says the authority missed seven of nine goals in the 2017-18 fiscal year and five of eight in the last fiscal year. KPFK's Alex Shapiro reports. The audit reported that outreach workers were supposed to place 10% of the homeless people they assessed into permanent housing, but in the fiscal year that ended June, placed only 4%. The goal of putting people into temporary shelters was 20%, but achieved only 14%. The discrepancies were greater for referrals to treatment. 6% for substance abuse and 4% for mental health both had goals of 25%. 
Peter Lin, Lasse's executive director, called the report misleading. He said it only addressed measures that are not well suited to measuring the effectiveness of their outreach. Lasse asserted they are reaching record numbers of homeless people in its programs. They believe a lack of affordable housing and treatment facilities are to blame for the homeless crisis. Those were our news headlines, and uh, today actually marks the 49th anniversary of the Chicano moratorium, and we want to do a, a deep dive into that history, into what happened. It is always surprising uh, when you uh, go around even in, in East Los Angeles and people may not know what happened. It's important for us to know our history so it doesn't repeat itself. Plus, there are events. There's a, one event that we're going to be talking about that will be commemorating the 49th uh, anniversary, but also getting ready for the 50th anniversary of the moratorium uh, next year. So what we are going to do before we speak with our guests, we're going to go to a clip that gives us an overview of what happened of that day, and it's from Color Lines. 30,000 Chicanos marched through the streets of East LA that day. It was meant to be a peaceful anti-war demonstration, but within a couple of hours, it looked like a war zone. 200 people were arrested, 60 were wounded, and 4 killed. Wait, hold on a second. Let's rewind for a moment. It was 1970, it was the Vietnam War, and President Nixon had just intensified the war, even after he said he would end it. Thousands of American soldiers were returning home in caskets, and one community started to notice a pattern. Mexican Americans, who were just 10% of the population in southwestern states, were 20% of those killed in combat. This sparked a movement in defense of Latinx lives. It wasn't exactly a Black Lives Matter moment, no two movements in history are the same, but it was the beginning of a Latinx-led push for civil rights, and part of U.S. history that many in the community are making sure is not forgotten four decades later. Latinos were being sent uh, to the front lines uh, deliberately were lower achievers in the eyes of the government but when it came to war and the need for cannon fodder were prime uh, meat. This is Rosalio Munoz. He was an outspoken student leader back then and co-founder of the Chicano Moratorium, an organized effort to mobilize Mexican-Americans and Chicanos to oppose the Vietnam War. The disproportionate death rate of Chicanos in Vietnam, which was the primary motivation, was part of a whole web of oppression, higher dropout rates, more people going to prisons. So on August 29, 1970, they decided to march. It became the largest anti-war action by any ethnic group in the United States. Uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful thing. And it, 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 subliminally, it got covered over by the brutal violence that followed an hour or two hours earlier. I remember Ruben Salazar came up to me in the middle of the march and giving me a huge abrazo and saying, congratulations, you did it. Salazar was a columnist for the LA Times, reporting on issues that mattered to the Chicano community. He was also a leading voice in the community's anti-war movement. He went to the moratorium march that day, and when the protests turned violent, Salas had ducked into a local bar. A police officer had fired a tear gas canister at the bar's entrance. The police claimed the canister struck Salas in the head and killed him instantly. But a lot of people questioned the circumstances that ended his life. And whether it was a tear gas projectile, whether it was another shot, there's many contradictions. If he were hit by a tear gas projectile, why was his head still intact? It was a tremendous loss to us. And although he died unjustly, he left his vision for better education and justice for Mexican-Americans as a legacy uh, uh, for the community. The Chicano Moratorium is a significant event in Ellie's history, but I didn't hear about it until an ethnic studies class in college. All of that was more than a decade ago. So I began to wonder, Maybe things had changed. I went back to where it all went down, East L.A., to see if other people had heard about the Chicano Moratorium. Have you ever heard something that took place around here called the Chicano Moratorium? 
No, I haven't. Have you ever heard of something called the Chicano Moratorium? No, I have not. Actually, that's new news for me. What do you think it is just by putting the two words Chicano together? Chicano Moratorium, you said? I don't know, an event that has to do with Chicanos? <laughs> so you've been here 57 years and never heard of Chicano no, Moratorium? No, I haven't. But for Rosalio Muñoz, that doesn't mean it didn't have an impact. Our, our primary goal was to raise uh, opposition to the war and support for more education. Uh, and more participation for civil rights and social justice. And we accomplished that. All righty, and that was a clip there from uh, Color Lines. And I'd now like to welcome our guests. Some are in studio. And uh, Teresa Montano on the line with us, professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies at California State University, Northridge. She's a member of the California Faculty Association and is actively involved in the movement to require ethnic studies as a graduation requirement for California students in K through 12 and the California State University system. Teresa, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, and in studio with us, I'm delighted to welcome Sol Marquez, a Boyle Heights resident and activist with the grassroots group Centro CSO. Uh, Marquez Sol, I'll just call her Sol, <clears throat> got her start in activism when her parents organizing strikes in the farms of Georgia and Washington State. In 2012, Sol was living in Florida when 17-year-old Trayvon Martin was killed by vigilante George Zimmerman. Sol helped organize protests outside the courthouse when Zimmerman was acquitted of second-degree murder and of manslaughter charges. She's now living in Boyle Heights. Uh, for our listeners in other parts of the country, that is, yes, in East L.A., <laughs> and considered part of East L.A., and uh, she continues fighting against police terror and for community control of the police, as well as fighting to defend public education and immigrants' rights. So, Marquez, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And also, we're delighted to welcome back uh, Bill Gallegos. You've heard Bill on Sojourner Truth, and sometimes in our roundtable and in other occasions as well. He is a longtime Chicano liberation and environmental justice activist. He is the author of The Sunbelt Strategy and the Ch Chicano Liberation and Reflections on the Green Economy. He is also the former executive director of Communities for a Better Environment, one of the leading environmental justice organizations and the U.S. And what a lot of people don't know about Bill, he's a poet. Bill, <laughs> welcome. Thank back. you, Margaret Prescott. It's good to be here. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, Teresa, we're we're going to start with you because, from what I understand, you actually were um, part of the Chicano uh, moratorium, and prior to the moratorium, actually there were the blowouts, uh, those walkouts, right. and you may want to uh, mention that uh, in terms of how. It relates to the buildup and the organizing that happened in the lead up to the moratorium, Teresa. Absolutely. I think what a, a lot of folks don't know is that we, we know about the 1968 blowouts that occurred at Lincoln and Roosevelt, but there were a series of high school walkouts from 68 to 70. Uh -huh. And I actually helped organize some of the walkouts at Huntington Park. So. You had a number of young Chicano and Chicana activists that were coming out of um, those high school blowouts with a real increased understanding um, about a lot of things. One, that the war in Vietnam um, was taking our youth. Two, that it wasn't our war and that we were beginning to reflect on the fact that our war was here at home and that we needed to really um, concentrate on the social conditions. So I was at the moratorium and I was, and listening to your clips uh, made me realize and bring back a number of memories about what it was like. Um, before before we go to that though, Teresa, I wanna pick up on something that you said because the f very fact that there were a series of walkouts in high school tells you that something's going on. There has to be something in the air, something happening that drives that, that is the impetus uh, for it. 
What do you think that was? I mean, was it the, the whole era? We know um, 1968, a lot was going on, not only in the U.S., but around the world. Uh, there was the, the big protests that happened in France and Paris in particular. People thought they were just going to shut that country down and, and change the government, et cetera. But what do you attribute to the inspiration um, or even the power that these young people, these high school students, felt to take such militant action? Well, I think we were, we were facing a number of things. There was an increasing um, movement and um, sentiment against the war in Vietnam worldwide. Um, right. a, an increasing sense and a rising up against um, U.S. control and imperialism throughout the world. And young people from all races and nationalities are beginning to have a sense of, wait a minute, this war just isn't right. But in particularly within um, communities of color, there was also an awakening in terms of our own racial consciousness in the United States and the civil rights movement. Um, we in the Chicano community were heavily influenced by uh, Malcolm X and by the black liberation movement that was happening. I grew up in South LA. It was something that I witnessed um, as a young person from 68 to 70. So those were the kinds of things that we're beginning to recognize as Chicanos. You knew you weren't white. You knew that you were confronted with racism. You knew that you were dying in Vietnam. Our young men were not returning at home. But it was connected to a social justice movement here at home. It was, we're tired of fighting this war when we recognize that the conditions that our parents and our communities are experiencing are wrong. And so we began to mobilize in our high schools to begin to call for Chicano Studies courses, for Black Studies courses. We asked for more counselors and teachers who look like us. And if they weren't going to listen we were going to learn from liberation movements throughout the world that you don't get you don't ask permission you build a movement and sometimes yeah. that means you put yourselves on the line and i think that that's what we were doing when we did our walkout right and before we, we yeah thank you yeah sorry about that teresa um before no. we get more into the moratorium itself uh bill i wonder what your thoughts are on all this where were you when all this was going on bill <laughs> well, I, at, at the time of the moratorium, I was a member of the Brown Berets, but I lived in Northern California, and okay. we were doing the same kinds of things. We were uh, fighting police brutality. The police had actually come down to Los Angeles, police from San Leandro, which at that time was an all-white suburb uh, in, the, in the East Bay, uh, had come down to Los Angeles looking for a Mexican suspect, and they, they found some Mexicanos living in a hotel, and they shot and killed one of them. And it uh, turns wow. out totally the, not the person they were looking for. So we had a big movement going on against that. We were also supporting the farm workers. And we were fighting against, well, we didn't call it gentrification at the time, but they wanted to run a freeway through the heart of Echigano Barrio in the, in the East Bay. And there was a huge fight to defend uh, the people, the population, the homes, and the institutions which rooted that, that community and our culture and our history. So that's, that's where I was at that yeah. time. And, uh, and you know, that gives we, us a context. Of, yeah, of and at that time, time also, we were very involved in the anti-war movement, uh, as, but from a different perspective, from kind of the, the white-led movement, which often didn't understand the uh, slogan, no justice, no peace. You know, they their <laughs> yeah. slogan was, uh, which was right, out now, the United States had to get its troops out. But we said that there's a war going on here against Native Americans, against African Americans, against Chicanos and Chicanas and other oppressed peoples, and that we had to connect these things. Their source was the same. So that was, uh, you know, it was a, a learning period for me. I was, you know, just becoming uh, politically active. But all of these things were going on. The, the revolution in, in Cuba had a huge impact. Um, on, on all people, but if you were Latino, it was really, especially, uh, we were very, very proud that this country had stood up to the United States and liberated itself, not only uh, uh, politically, but economically, to say we are going to try a new path, a socialist path. This had a huge impact on a lot of us who were just coming into our political consciousness, 
And um, one of the things that was happening at this time as our movement was emerging was its left wing was emerging, a radical and revolutionary sector of the movement, which began to say that the roots of our problem are in capitalism and imperialism. And the annexation of Mexico's northern territories are at the root of the oppression that we face in this country. Right. So that that was part, of, and, and certainly that kind of analysis was also happening uh, in the black community and, and the whole thrust of the United Front. Remember that whole United right. Front thing of people uh, coming together, black and brown people in particular. Uh, also part of, of the context, uh, radical in its own way, not uh, from the way of a, an analysis of, of capitalism was also the farm workers movement. That's I right. imagine that that uh, also had an impact in, in the context at, at the time. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. it was, uh, I know in the, in the Brown Berets, we were at the Safeways, we were doing the boycott at stores every okay. weekend. Yeah. Uh, it was an obligation because we realized that standing up to agribusiness, what the, the Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and the farm workers are doing, was beyond, uh, its impact was even beyond what was going on in the fields where our most oppressed people were working. That's right. No water, no bathrooms, ni nada. You know, so this was uh, seen as kind of a, a central uh, element of our struggle. At that time, we didn't realize that there was an element of it that was had involved environmental justice because yeah. they were fighting against the use of herbicides and pesticides, which were poisoning the families and the children of the farm workers, but also poisoning the water and the land. So there was a lot that was kind of uh, developing uh, as part of our struggle at that time. And one of the things that was important was kind of the class struggle element within our movement. As in every movement. As in every movement, (laughs) because there was a sector that said, you know, we just want a piece of the pie. And, you know, these these kind of these radicals, these brown berets and La Razonida and these socialists and these communists, you know, they don't really have a base in our community. And that the the powers that be, you should talk to us. We'll, We'll keep everything under control. And the Chicano Moratorium revealed something because it was organized by communist, socialist, radicals and revolutionaries. And it became the biggest mass action in our history. Right. With an overwhelmingly working class. Those were folks whose shirt collar was blue marching in that march. Okay. Hold, and, it hold. Sh- and it demonstrated uh-huh. to, the, to these folks, the, the people that wanted to kind of curve, narrow our struggle, right. that these folks that they had denigrated had a base. We're, we're the good Chicanos. We had, had a following and had and resonance among the grassroots folks in our community. That was very important right. uh, element of this, what this history represents. Okay, we're going to need to go to station break soon, but before we do that, Saul, just as a, a young person listening uh, to Teresa, who was there, part of it, Bill, part of it, not in Southern California, but in, in Northern uh, California. And as you are hearing their stories and, and also some of the demands coming from the walkout, they set, they rang a bell to some of the demands in the recent teachers' strike uh, that happened here in in Los Angeles. So, just as as a young person coming into uh, this movement, um, what do you take? What are you inspired by? What you have heard, and what you know of the Chicano Moratorium. So, um, I was in high school and living in the state of Georgia when I became a machista. So, uh, you know, that's when I found out that I was a Chicana, that I needed to pick up the torch, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot about this, I'm, and I'm still learning about it and, and hear, hearing different people's uh, stories from when they were involved back in the 60s. Uh, and it's surprising that, you know, despite such a huge wave of movement and and breakthroughs that the Chicano movement was able to, to do, uh, there's still so much that's left to overcome, so much left uh, to to win. And so, you know, when when we did participate in the teacher strike in January just of this year, which was historic, it was one of the biggest uh, protests and strikes in in history. And that's the strike of Los Angeles Unified School District. Right. They hadn't, you know, they hadn't gone on strike in like 30 years. Right. So um, it was amazing to see the demands that people were putting forth. Um, We marched with them every single day uh, in Bowl Heights. We participated at Breed Street Elementary and it was pouring rain almost every single day, you know, Uh, but a lot of the demands were, you know, very similar uh, 
education that really matters to the people who, who are taking these courses, you know, little Chicanitos and, and different people of, of mixed nationalities. Uh, so it's, it's very important to understand that when you have teachers who look like you now, you know, when that wasn't possible back then, but now you're seeing these teachers who are Chicano, who are black, who are from different parts of the world. Uh, and they're, they're teaching our students, but yet they're not given the resources to be able to do so. They're very limited. And if ethnic studies isn't a part of a requirement, then things like the Chicano moratorium, things that we were able to, to you know, materially benefit from, from back in the day, none of that is going to be told. It's not going to be provided to us so that we understand our history to see what our conditions are currently and what we can still win. Yeah, and, and there was a, a white flight in, in the public school system in Southern California, in Los Angeles, because I remember when I was in New York, was a young teacher and another life in Ocean Hill, Brownsville, in Brooklyn. Um, you know, the schools um, in LA Unified were considered some of the best in the nation. And now what we see, the majority of students are black or brown, right? Um, and the schools have dropped mm-hmm. uh, and and the resources are few so there's to me anyway that points to a, a racist element in terms of what's happening absolutely absolutely yeah. um if you know i i go to breed street elementary you know when we were there and i drive by it every day going back home and i can see the cracks i mean it was raining so we can see the cracks of water seeping through the soil going through their brick uh, walls uh, a lot of these schools are so underfunded and yet it, we live in the second biggest district school district in the country where is that money going what's why are we not focusing on education and now we're talking about you know buying more security guards at the doors because of these mass shootings when we should be focusing on education and addressing yeah. you know like white supremacy and all that so it's it's like a full circle uh, yeah. today, so we'll be back to you in a moment. We're just going to take a short pause for a station break, and we are going to continue this discussion with Teresa Montano, Sol Marquez, and Bill Gallego. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You are listening to KBOO Portland. It is 8.35 a.m. Next up, we have a KBU Public Affairs special with a look at the 1970 Vortex Music Festival. Los Alvarados, yo soy Chicano. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, uh, you can like and friend us there. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And also check out our website at sotrueradio.org. All of our back shows are archived there. We also have a community calendar that will include some of the events coming up uh, marking the Chicano uh, moratorium. And we're also worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we would like to give a shout out, let's see, Donaldsville, Louisiana. Donaldsville, Louisiana. Okay, got to find that on the map. And uh, internationally, why don't we do a shout out to our listeners south of the border in Mexico. And uh, we are having an in-depth, a special commemoration. This is the 49th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium. Our guests are uh, Teresa Montaño. She's on the line with us, and she was part of the Chicano Moratorium. Sol Marquez, another generation. She is organizing to make sure everybody knows about the Chicano Moratorium and helping to organize an event uh, around that. And uh, Bill Gallegos, of course, longtime uh, activist and environmentalist in the Chicano movement. Uh, so what um, we're going to do now, uh, Teresa, just back to you. And we talked about the context of the moratorium and the lead up to the moratorium and how a young person today now looking back at the moratorium. But let's get into the moratorium itself. Just paint a picture for our listeners so they could really get a sense. I mean, I've, I've looked at some little video clips and I've looked at some uh, some photos. And I mean, there was some serious business going on. Paint a picture for us of what was what that was like. Teresa. Well, absolutely. It was an amazing day. I mean, you saw um, Chicanos and and other uh, people of color and other allies from all over the country um, 
converge on the park um, when the when the march began, and the march itself was um, filled with slogans, you know, Chicano power, um, uh, what do we, you know, Vasa Si, Gerano, um, people who you, you hadn't seen um, in ages, young people who were coming to terms with their own consciousness, beginning to emerge um, as Chicanos and Chicanas, um, being a sense of pride, a sense of um, dignity and self-worth during the march, sense of jubilation. And we um, stopped at Salazar Park. It was a very, very hot day. And uh, there were families. I and mean, it wasn't just, you know, young people and activists. There were whole families that came together to experience the Chicano Moratorium. Um, there was music and there was folklorico. And in the middle of the day, um, all of a sudden, you see tear gas canisters flying um, into the audience. And all of a sudden, you see thousands of people beginning to run towards the stage and away from the park. Um, I, I had a, a friend who was with me as we were running, because that's all you could do. The, the, the cops were just converging on the park who got hit with the baton for doing nothing else but trying to get out of the way. Um, the community was so open. It, people were scattered all over the place. And some folks did, you know, like Ruben Salazar, go into businesses. Other um, community members opened up their homes and their hoses to um, get the, um, the tear gas out of our face. So. Mm. A, a joyous occasion turned into what someone described as a war zone. Um, you lost the colleagues that you um, were with, and you you really worked and hoped that you got home. That night, um, there was a curfew, and um, it was it was amazing. And what amazes me is to hear folks who li now live in Boyle Heights who have no idea of what the moratorium is like, because for those of us were there. Um, there is. I've been to a lot of marches. I've been to a lot of demonstrations. Um, some larger, some smaller, but none um, arose a consciousness in myself or others like that moratorium did. Yeah, and I mean, what you're describing, because it, it really, I know it's a, a lot of it was anti-war, but also clearly there were a number of other demands around education, discrimination, racism, you know, et cetera. But it was, if you just look at the anti-war aspect of it, it was the largest among people of color. I mean, there were black people clearly who were opposed to the war. There were welfare mothers who were out protesting and saying, we're not going to send our sons, you know, to fight your war. Uh, but just in terms of the numbers, uh, this certainly was the largest um, known uh, during that Vietnam uh, era. And Teresa, I wonder, did any of you have any idea that so many people would turn up? I mean, if they're saying 30,000, I'm assuming that that likely was an underestimate, maybe not. <laughs> um, but did you have any idea that it would really uh, be this large and, and and what you've described you really describe a community that even those who were not part of the event who were not part of the the march and the activities who were sympathetic enough to offer uh, protection to you and it reminds me of a story from Angela Davis um, of a, a similar situation where they were being chased by the police or some such uh, down in South LA and people opened their doors and 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 really hid them which in a lot of ways saved their lives, uh, Teresa. And, and that's exactly what happened. Um, I lost the friend that I was with, and, and um, a couple, older couple, opened their door and um, had me and a, a bunch of new friends um, mm. stay in there until it got safe. Uh, no, I don't think I had any idea how many people um, were going to be there. I, I knew it was going to be large. Um, but I think I got the sense of the um, the size of the march the minute I got to the march and it was over. And actually, after I saw it in the news, there was no way that we knew that there were going to be that many people. Uh, we did know it was going to be large, but and, and I I do think thirty thousand is an under um, an underestimation of the folks that were there. 
And when you count the support in the community, it was even much, much higher. All of them clearly, clearly against the war in Vietnam. But again, the demands for a better education, health care, and into police brutality, all of that was just as um, important as the end of the war in Vietnam. Yeah, and you know, I, I happened to get a hold, I think, through um, Beto over at the Eastside uh, Cafe in El Sereno of a DVD of an event that was held, uh, a Black Brown Unity event with Amiri Baraka and some other folks. And um, just the poetry there was just incredible. And in thinking uh, about that, I mean, the and on our show, we always talk about the interrelationship between art and politics. And certainly listening to that event with Amiri uh, Baraka and also um, hearing some of Bill's poetry and also the poetry of Ron Baca, who was on the show back in April during um, the International um, Poetry Month. <laughs> you know, there is such a thing as, as Poetry Month. So, Bill, I thought that since we're talking about the moratorium, um, perhaps you have some words in poetry to share with yeah. us. Yeah, and I, I just um, you know want to echo how important it is this fight that Teresa is doing for ethnic studies as a requirement. Because why don't people know about this? That's right. You know, it's it's interesting. There was a book by uh, Seymour Hersh called The Price of Power about Henry Kissinger, who was just a, a groveling, horrible servant of the ruling class. Mass murderer. But, it, yeah, it, it talks in there about how he, uh, Richard Nixon, freaked out when he heard about what happened with the Chicano moratorium. Because they assumed they had the Mexicans in line. They expected uprising from the African-American community. They knew about the black liberation struggle and they feared the black liberation struggle. But when the moratorium happened, this Uh is on the Nixon tapes, they freaked out, which was good, which was good because they realized that there was another oppressed people that was fighting for its liberation. So this is called El Moratorio Chicano. I'm not all that creative with titles, but that's what it's (laughs) called. So waves crashing through the streets of a hot and smoggy barrio Thunder, thunder, pounding along the shoreline of poverty. La playa de opresión. Raza sí, yerra no. Raza sí, yerra no. Raza sí, yerra no. An ancient sound, a holy sound. Un grito por la paz. We will die for you no more. Our blood will no longer flow for bankers and crooks. Our flesh will never again rot for pitiful dreams of stolen wealth. We will continue to die, but we will die in a noble way. We will die fighting you. 30,000 of us say, hell no, we won't go, but we will stay and fight you. We will sacrifice our youth, la primavera, to fight you, to build on your ruins something beautiful, untouched by your corruption. Raza si, yerra no, raza si, yerra no, raza si, yerra no. A new prayer a new song, a new poem, a new dream for our homeland, nuestra gente, nuestra nación. Don't call me boy. Don't talk about spicks and dirty Mexicans. Don't tell me about my place. This is our place, our barrio, our colonia, our comunidad. Racist, slave master, dying boss of a dying empire. You better watch yourself here. 30,000 in a moratorium against your war, 30,000 making a call to our war, we will fight you to the death. The toilers, seekers of knowledge, creators of art, the youthful future of our people, experienced teacher of past generations, all, all, we will all fight you. You attack, 2,000 cops sent to kill us. Mindless, they shoot, kill, maim, burn, march on the dignity of our jefitos. Yes, you did murder three of our sons, Salazar, Ward, and Diaz. But look how they rise from the grave. Watch their faces in the thousands who throw stones through your cowardice, who torch your ragged inhumanity. Can you see their somber warning as they live again? Can't you see the outlines of their souls in the flames which raise bold tongues to heaven? The moratorium, el moratorio, the fire that will never die. Bill Gallegos, a poet. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank you. Uh, Bill. And uh, Teresa, um, 
Yeah, that was beautiful. That was really just Gracias. perfect, perfect. Uh, Teresa, um, in, in the case of, of Ruben uh, Salizar, I mean, you have the park uh, named after him now. And uh, some of our listeners may not know who he is and his role and the importance uh, that he um, played uh, before he was so brutally killed by the Los Angeles Police Department. And I wonder if you could share uh, some of that with us. Saul, you may want to weigh in um, since you weren't around then, but I'm sure you know who he is. Teresa. Well, Ruben Salazar was um, a Chicano reporter for the LA Times, and uh, one of his beats actually at one point was the Vietnam War. But he um, not only served as a reporter on um, issues pertinent to the city of Los Angeles, he was our voice um, in the LA Times. One of his, and I still use it in my Chicano studies courses um, in explaining the the term Chicano. One of his seminal pieces um, he wrote, uh, a Chicano is a Mexican-American with a a non-Anglo image of himself. And so his um, his role in um, journalism and in the press was incredible. And in fact, as Sol was talking about um, United Teachers Los Angeles, I was a teacher in L.A. when the Ruben Salazar Memorial Scholarship began um, as a tribute to Ruben Salazar, uh, whose wife was a teacher um, for many, many years at Roosevelt. And uh, they give out a scholarship in his name annually to students in L.A. So he was um, a historical uh, figure, but someone that um, that our students um, should know about. And unfortunately, because they don't have ethnic studies and we're still fighting for it, very few will actually know the contributions he made until we get ethnic studies as a graduation requirement. Yeah, and Saul bringing you into this discussion because you were involved in supporting the last teacher's strike and and mentioned earlier the importance of ethnic studies. And uh, clearly there's a reason why we don't know our history. I mean, you go into East L.A. um, I actually live in East L.A., live in El Sereno. Um, People don't know about the Chicano moratorium, but I'm of African descent too. And um, a lot of young people um, just shocked by how little is known even about the civil rights era, right? Uh, right. Things that likely, if Bill and I are part of our institutional memory, uh, but for a lot of young people don't know because why? Why is that? And I wanted you to just underscore that point for us picking up from the point uh, Teresa made. But uh, in addition to that, I do want you to comment this whole thing about the names. I mean, Teresa talked about the definition of Chicano, Mexican-American um, with a non-Anglo image of themselves. But there's all of this discussion and whatnot going on about language now. There's Chicano, Chicana, uh, Latina, Lat- uh, Latino, uh, Latinx or Latinx, um, Hispanic. Um, someone said, look, we should just be called La Raza. <laughs> and I just wonder if you wanted to comment at all yeah. on that as well. So Absolutely. Two points. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I, I think this is a conscious effort of um, the rulers that be, if I should call them that, or, you know, the bourgeoisie to kind of like help erase who we are, right? To keep us kind of divided and not really give us a, a voice or a context to the history that they've so, you know, ruthlessly uh instilled upon us, right? So like Chicanos, uh, we originated around 1848, right, with with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which is after the Mexican-American War. Um, And, you know, Mexico was defeated. And uh, as a result of that, there was now a grouping of people in these states that used to be part of Mexico, but no longer were. Mm -hmm. Uh, And with that came, you know, the indigenous of of these lands, the Tongva around here, um, and, you know, it's it's a whole complex issue, but in reality, it, it boils down to the fact that when you don't educate people about their history, then they have nothing to be unhappy about. They just think that they're a part of this superstructure, which is, you know, the U.S., it's perfect, you're an American, carry those those stars and those bars, you know? And it's, and in, in fact, this entire country has been founded on subjugation, on erasure, on violence. And it's it's a history that needs to be taught so that we understand that we we have the power to overcome these things and to unite and to fight with, for what's just. 
Um, and I, I think the ethnic studies is, is a, a place where we've all started, you know, on the black liberation movement, the Chicano liberation movement, lots of different movements in, in the history of the U.S. are fighting for ethnic studies. And it's one that is is one of the first steps in, in moving in a, in a good direction. Uh, currently, California is fighting for that. And I know that in Arizona, it was one, I, I believe it was 2018, it was the first time in U.S. history that it, it became mandated to have ethnic studies uh, for, for Chicanos, you know, but also black black uh, education was taught then too. Uh, I do want to mention um, that Ruben Salazar, you know, now that that park is mentioned uh, or named Ruben Salazar Park, it used to be Laguna Park. Um, it's very important to understand that he he would take trips to Mexico and and kind of like talk about the the uprisings of Mexicanos on on the other side of the border, which you know it, it kind of it, it's very different from that uh, with Chicanos on this side of the border, but it's still we kind of feed off of each other's energy. And so um, what what others might not know too is that. Uh, Ruben Salazar had actually recordings of Stokely Carmichael when he was in Mexico. And Stokely Carmichael, for those who don't know, was a, a huge fighter in the Black Liberation Movement. He was a Black Panther. He was amazing and a socialist. Uh, but the FBI uh, actually tried to subpoena Ruben Salazar to get those recordings, to say, hey, can, we need those recordings. We believe that there might be something that we can use off of those recordings to kind of like break up the Black Liberation Movement. Mm. Ruben Salazar said, you know, if you want me to release those recordings, you're you're going to I'm going to have to make it publicly known that you, the FBI, is asking me for these recordings. So they backed off and they never, you know, he never gave them up, which is important to know because, you know, with our struggles, the black liberation movement, the Chicano liberation movement and lots of other movements, it's important to stand united. And if if the FBI is paying attention to these movements, you know, it's it's obviously for the, the right reasons, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would be shocked if Ruben Salazar wasn't targeted. You know, right, um, right. You know, like it was "quote unquote" an accident. Well, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. who who knows? So that brings us. I'm I'm looking at the clock here. You know, you never have as much time <laughs> as you you would hope to have. Um, I would like to um, bring this discussion in, if if that's okay, to some of what's happening today. Um, we saw what happened in El Paso. I'll just play a a, a short clip from that. And, you know, after the Chicano moratorium, after the militant black movement, the by the way, you'll have to tell people quickly what the Brown Berets, in, just in case people may not know about who they are. Um, but here we are. I mean, just uh, the other day I was talking about uh, 1619 with Dr. Gerald Horn and going back to the 1500s and, you know, back to when the Spanish were in in Florida and a slave rebellion that actually happened in Spanish territory in um, South Carolina that helped to get the Spanish, you know, out of the territory, you know, altogether. So this there's this long, long history. And Dr. Gerald Horn talked about George Washington as a, a, a um, real estate speculator. And here you are, we are now with 45 Donald Trump, a real estate speculator. And let us just hear a short clip of People were not happy when he decided to go to El Paso. We all know on August 3rd, 2019, 22 people killed, 24 injured by a racist who wanted to target Mexicans uh, in particular. Uh, Let's go to that clip. The president has made my community and my people the enemy. He has told the country Mm -hmm. that we are people to be feared people to be hated. From my perspective, he is not welcome here. He should not come here while we are in mourning. He's incited racism. He's invited violence. Um, These are the consequences for his actions. So do I believe that that he wants to move forward on on anything that would positively address the situation? Absolutely not. From where we stand right now on the other side of the border, It's one of the most dangerous cities in the world, Juarez, Mexico. I will continue to challenge any harmful and inaccurate statements made about El Paso. We will not allow anyone to portray El Paso in a manner that is not consistent with our history and values. Well, there you go. Um, Trump uh, being Trump just from the start of his campaign, bashing uh, Mexican people of Mexican descent as he came down the uh, escalator. And uh, just, I think, today was announced that he wants money 
for the wall. He wants it done, uh, likely in time for the election, and he's going to take money from disaster relief uh, to go to build that wall. This, by the way, as a Category 3 hurricane is now not only uh, scheduled to hit Puerto Rico, but also will be headed uh, for Florida. So, uh, you know, and and so many of us, I I was explaining to somebody, just, just I'm an immigrant, right? And when I first came to this country from Barbados as a young teenager, and my aunt, who is a, a black American, she was active with the Congress of Racial Equality in Brooklyn. And one of the things she said to me and my sister, she would always say, girls, if you ever see a police officer, don't run. For any reason, just don't run. And we were trying to figure out, well, why is this the case? We would make up things like, well, what if we're late for the bus and it's about to pull? Should we run there? You know what I mean? Because we're young people. And she would say, under no circumstances uh, do you run. So uh, from a very young age, you're instilled with this idea that there's a target on your back. Uh, you were uh, Saul in Florida with uh, when the Trayvon uh, thing uh, happened. So now with El Paso, I think it's it's clear, if it wasn't clear before, it's clear now that there's a target on the backs of brown people. Well, indigenous people, there's always been that, uh, right. you know, been that target. So I wondered if you wanted to um, just, you know, give a response to what has happened with El Paso, but also tell us about the event that you're part of helping to organize for the 49th and leading into the 50th, because there's, there is a connection with what happened with the moratorium then and what's happening with the communities now. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that you presented this clip. Um, you know, with the, the original Chicano moratoriums, that, that was a part of it, you know, the, the killings of, of Chicanos overseas uh, in Vietnam, but also police brutality, police terror. And, you know, and I live in Bull Heights, and in 2016, we had a massive number of killings just in our, our small neighborhood. There were six in under a year. Mm. And uh, it was horrendous. Two of them were teenagers, a 16-year-old named Jose Mendez and a 14-year-old named Jesse uh, Romero. And so, you know, we've been doing this Chicano moratorium at Centro CSO for the past five years. Uh, the 49th is going to include different speakers who, who have had police brutality affect their, their families. One speaker, her name is Lisa Vargas. Her son was killed uh, on August uh, 27th of 2018. It, it just became the, the first uh, year anniversary. And, you know, it was horrendous. He, he was killed down by a mistaken identity. Uh, East L.A. Sheriff said that, you know, he, he may have been a, a robber. Uh, there were reports of two different thieves um, in, in that barrio. And uh, they ended up just shooting him because he ran. Just how you said, you know, you have a target on your back. And they shot him in the back. And um, the next day, uh, East L.A. Sheriff said, you know, we, we didn't catch our robbers. Can you help us locate them? So why did they kill Anthony? You know, so she'll be speaking. Um, and, you know, like you said, we are gearing up for the 50th. Where I'm, our organization, Centro CSO, is part of a broader coalition uh, that's made up of teachers, different um, people from around, the, you know, Los Angeles, but all over Aslan or the Chicano Nation. And we're coming together to put it on. There's a big fundraiser that's happening um, on September 20, 29th, I believe it is. And uh, it's going to be um, at Rudy's. And uh, we, we do invite 